0: So this, um, this sermon flows from a, a long, maybe 12-month journey that I've had in a, a book that's called With, okay? And I encourage you to get the book. Many of us have read it. I'm teaching a Sunday school class on it. It's by a guy named Sky Jethani. Uh, get the book. It's called With. So that's one thing that's on my, been on my heart and mind for a while. The other thing is um, my oldest daughter, Sarah turned 21 this week and she got engaged last week. And so that's exciting. And as those of you who know, uh, in those moments of your life as an adult, as a parent, particularly of, of you know, these consequential things that happen in your kid's life, it causes you to reflect. It causes you to reflect on what's happened. And, and the theme of my reflection has been What a joy it has been to be with my children and to have my children with me. Parenting Sarah and my other three children for 21 years has reminded me that of all the things that we've experienced, of all the things we've done, of all the things they've done, good and bad, of all the things I've done, good and bad, the essence of our relationship is with each other. We bought a dinner table years ago, 20 years ago to facilitate Nightly dinners where we would be with each other and you could see each other's face. We don't allow cell phones at our dinner table so that we can be with each other. We don't have a TV on the main level of our house because when we had people over and when our kids were together, we just wanted to be with each other. Being with my children and having them with me is to me, the apex of being a father. You see, they could have done wonderful things, and they have, great grades, scored points in basketball, performed well in concerts. But what sticks out is being with them. It's true, and my wife and I remind them of this all the time. You have a warm shower, a soft bed, and three square meals a day. Quit the griping. But even all that provision doesn't doesn't compare to getting to be with them. Being with our children has been the most rewarding and impacting thing for Danielle and me. As I thought about this, I think this is absolutely true with our relationship with God as well. Of all the things God might do for us, of all the things we might do for God, of all the things God might be doing in the world, what the scriptures would say is God's heart is to be with you and for you to be with Him. And that's what we're going to see today is our eternal situation is going to be an eternal life with God and us with him. Does that excite you? Do you believe that? Do you want that? That's what we're going to look at. So let's, let's dive in first and look at the passage as it's written. And then we'll pull some applications out. Verse 1. This is, it says, then I. This I is John, the apostle, Jesus' best friend. This is the man who was reclining on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. This is the man who was standing next to Mary, Jesus' mother, as they watched Jesus die a, uh, a criminal's death on a cross. And Jesus says to him, behold your mother, behold your son. John, I want you to take care of my mother when I'm gone. Which we knew three days later he would rise again and ascend to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the father. But this is his best friend. This is not just religious jargon. These were men in relationship. This was the son of God with a best friend on earth who he gave the privilege to say, John, I'm gonna show you something that will be for all times, write it down. So he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. When it says a new heaven and a new earth, what does this mean? We have no idea. No one's ever been there. That's why it's a new heaven, a new earth. If we knew, it wouldn't be new. K-N-E-W versus N-E-W. Yeah, right, you got that. But that's the point, isn't it? It's new. It's not something we've experienced. It's not something we understand. What, is it okay that we have no idea? I mean, books have been written, movies have been made. I mean, a whole book series called the Left Behind series is trying to convince us of this new heaven and new earth and the progress towards it. Lectures have been given, songs have been written, but we don't know, nobody knows. Let me illustrate it this way. If I held up for you right here, a little kernel of corn said, what do you think this is going to become? And if you had never seen a corn cob or a corn stalk or a field of corn, and I showed you this little yellow kernel of corn, could you even fathom the glory of a buttered corn on the cob? If you'd never had it, you couldn't. You couldn't fathom what that little kernel would produce. Just go today and Google uses of corn. It's unbelievable. Food, Fertilizer. You can actually use the corn cobs after you've eaten them as like a, a loofah sponge on your body. You can actually use the silks to make things. Like it's amazing. And, and, and the point is this. If you had never seen all that and knew nothing about corn, and I showed you this little yellow seed, you, I mean, we could debate for hours about what it might become, but you wouldn't know. That's exactly the scripture's point and actually what Jesus taught about the kingdom. It's like a mustard seed, he said, the smallest seed. And when it's full grown, it will be an ecosystem of life for the cosmos. There's no way we can fathom this right now, but that's what it says. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. Because the old one that is tainted with sin is gone. But Jesus taught us this. Jesus actually came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he started to heal. He started to walk on water. He raised the dead, an inaugurated version of the kingdom that was to come. He didn't heal everybody on the earth at that time. He didn't raise all the dead. He didn't eradicate all of sin at that moment when he appeared. What he did was he set in motion what the Bible calls the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. And It doesn't really matter, does it, about all that stuff? We'll see this again in a second. The point in the new heaven and new earth, God will be there. We will be in his presence. Notice at the end of that verse, it says that the sea is no more. This is an interesting phrase. Why in the world would John tell us that the sea would be no more? That you have the new heaven and the new earth, but the sea is no more. The sea to ancient people was to be feared. It was full of chaos, it was full of judgment. Noah's flood was because the seas tormented the earth. The Exodus, God judged uh, the Egyptians by throwing the sea on top of them. The sea was to be feared. Even when Jesus was on the earth, the disciples who were seafaring men were terrified of the sea. And even the chapter just before Revelation 21 and 19 and 20, the beast, the devil himself is thrown into the sea. It's utter destruction, his utter destruction. So when John says the sea will be no more, when the new heaven and the new earth come, no more chaos, no more judgment. And in fact, the seas also were the dividing lines of the nations. God said in Job to the seas, this far and no further. And he therefore made the boundaries of the earth, no more division, no more chaos, no more destruction, no more division. God will be with us. Look at verse two and three. John says, again, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her bridegroom, for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Why would God give us this illustration of the bride and groom? We all know what this is like. No matter where you are in life, from a young kid to, to a widow, you know what it's like to see the exuberance of a wedding day. I say this at every wedding that I've done. I've done almost 45 weddings. I'll say something like this. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is the knucklehead right here who's going to get married. And he is the the picture of Jesus. (laughs) And he's crying and slobbering on himself. And, you know, he's just beside himself with excitement. And in just a minute, those doors are going to open. And the climactic moment of this wedding service is going to be the bride who comes out of that. And she is adorned, ready for her bridegroom. We all know what that's like. Even if you say, they ain't going to make it. I know that couple, they ain't going to make it. Even if that's true, that moment when a bride is adorned for her bridegroom, we know the excitement, the exuberance, the joy, the beauty, the anticipation. That's what Jesus is saying right here. That's how God feels about that day when I bring a new heaven and a new earth, like a bride adorned for her bridegroom. He can't wait to be united with her. And she can't wait to be united with him. In fact, the word that John uses here in Revelation, God will dwell with his people is the same word he uses in John, his, his, his gospel, John 1, when he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally took up residence or tabernacled. And we are meant to see that from Genesis to Revelation, God has been about the business of making himself a place on the earth to reside with his people. He made a garden. They rebelled against that. He had the tent of meeting. They rebelled against that. He built a tabernacle. They rebelled against that. He sent his son. They killed him. And what he says here, I'm gonna do it again. And this time it's for certain. I will dwell tabernacled with them. It is the climax of the entire process where God comes to his people. So close is this eternal communion between God and his people that he intends to dwell with them in one tent. God will be with us. So we're gonna look at this in more detail in a second, but let's finish this little section of passage. What happens when God is with his people? Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things have passed away. Listen, folks, I don't know if we're gonna enjoy bourbon or coffee or Kobe steak in the new heavens and earth. I don't know if we're gonna play golf, play cards, ride horses, or snow ski. I don't know if we'll have houses, neighborhoods, or city parks. I don't know. We just can't fathom what God has made. But honestly, I don't think that's the point, and I don't think it really matters. What we read here is the apex of the new heaven and the earth. It is not the stuff or the things that we'll be doing. It will be who is there, and it's God himself. If I told you, that what was the only absolute truth that we could bank on in the new heaven, new earth was that God would be present. Would you argue about the details? Would you argue about what kind of hair color you're gonna have and if we'll have automobiles or if we'll have football or... No! Or at least we'd have a little more humility about these assertions. If you're telling me that wars will cease, babies will no longer die... Parents will not abuse their children. Sexual exploitation will cease. Lying, stealing, murder will all cease. And I don't care about the peripherals. Just give me God. Because in his presence, it's total peace, total joy, complete fulfillment. That's exactly what this passage is teaching. Life with God is the most glorious life. And it is our eternal situation. Jesus famously taught his disciples to pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's a problematic, isn't it? Because I just gave you heaven's glimpse of presence with God. Why don't we experience that here? Why don't I experience the presence of God here? What keeps me from being with God here on earth as Jesus intended? let me give you some diagnostics. What I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna give you two paradigms, two ways of thinking, how people think. And then I'm gonna give you four postures. You understand how this works, right? You present yourself as a posture to the world because of a way you think. So I'm gonna give you two extremes of a paradigm, two paradigms that oftentimes manifest themselves in postures. Here we go, first paradigm. I don't feel worthy to be with God. God would not wanna be with me. I'm too messy, I'm too sinful, I'm too blank. If you only knew what I've done, what I've thought, where I've been, what I've failed to do, God would frankly not wanna be with me. I'm too ashamed to be with him. Sin has so ravished this pop, the paradigm that you can't even imagine a situation that God would want to be with you. The second paradigm, I don't see a need to be with God. I'm doing just fine on my own. I can handle things just fine as he set them up. What would being with him benefit me? I've I've done all these asked. This is a functional atheist. Sin has so calloused this paradigm that you really think you are fine without his presence. These are extremes. Most of us can find ourselves somewhere in there. These extremes come with postures. How do I present myself to God in relationship to him? Let me give you those and see if you can identify where you are. And I will tell you very clearly where I am. The first posture is a person lives what they call life under God. God in this posture is seen as a supreme judge with a law and he is just waiting to condemn you. On a whim, he wants to cast you down for breaking his law. And he can't wait to ruin you. He can't wait to cause you to have a disease. He can't wait to cause you to have a, uh, lose your job, to have your kids disobey you. Because he's a judge and you live life under him. And you spend your whole life trying to appease this angry, capricious God. The fear of making him mad causes you to posture yourself under him. This person doesn't want to be with God because He or she is too afraid of him and just seeks to appease him. The second posture is life over God. God is supreme watchmaker. He made a watch, set it up. If you just do life just like he said it would, then you'll have a working watch. You don't need his presence. Just do what he said. Just eat right, manage your money right, raise your kids right, run your business right, go the speed limit, four, seven miles over or so. Don't get a ticket. Just just do what it says. Manage your life. This person doesn't or want to be with God because they're just fine with the things, the way they work functionally. Life's efficient. This is me. This is me. I just think if you do the right thing, things happen well. This is is my bend. Life over God. I'll, I'll tell you my repentance a little bit. I don't stay there. Number three life from God. God is seen as the holy Aladdin, genie in this guy. I just rub the lamp and he gives me what I want. I need today, I need good health. I need healthy kids. I need a degree. I need some retirement. I need a new car. I need my business to go well. I need my spouse to straighten up. I need, I need stuff from you, God. And he's the supreme genie. And if you need me to pray, go to church, do a Bible study, be in a parish group. I'll do that just as long as I get stuff from you. This person doesn't want or need to be in the presence of God. They just want stuff from God. This is the God of the consumeristic culture. And the last posture is life for God. God is seen as the ultimate general with a mission to accomplish. The fear is of not accomplishing God sized visions for him. The per, this person doesn't want or need to be with God. They're busy trying to do his work. He is most happy with me when I am most busy for him. This is me again. You know, the over and the four go real nice together, right? Man, we got, we got a job to do here, folks. We got to get after it. And there's a whole bunch of principles from Philip Covey to Patrick Lencioni to John Piper to John Calvin. Man, we can put all that stuff together. We can get a real good strategy and we can get after it. We don't really need his presence. We might pray just to christen it a little bit. Man, it's, that, I'm sorry that that's the way I am, but I am that way and I'm working on it. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly repenting of the idol of mattering. I just have to matter because I approach God from this over and for. Listen, when you can diagnose which of these postures you lean toward, you know exactly where you should repent. I know exactly where I need to slow down, where I need to repent, where I need to change. Tim Keller said an idol is making good things into ultimate things. This is what I, I do this with the mission of God. Some of you do it with the law of God. Some of you do it with the stuff of God. Repenting of this and turning to God for God's presence is what we want. All right, let me, try to, let me try to massage this down a little more. Okay, all right. Because I know, I know sometimes talking about God and how I relate to him up here in this high level is a little bit complex. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit ambiguous, right? But let me, the best way sometimes for me to do this is to say, okay, perhaps the way I relate to people is actually how I relate to God. All right, so let me just take a risk here. My wife and I, we're gonna celebrate our 23rd anniversary on December 14th. All right, so I'm gonna apply this to my, my marriage. December 14th, show up at the house. Happy anniversary, Danielle. I don't really wanna be with you. I'm just really afraid of you. And sometimes you're not in a good mood and sometimes you scare me. So could you just kind of tell me the laws of an anniversary and the expectations and I'll just try to meet them as best I can and then we can just go on our separate ways. Life under Daniel. Or, happy anniversary, honey. I don't really want or even need to be with you today or any day, really. Uh, I've, got, I've got it all figured out. I've got this marriage book. I've got these podcasts that I listen to. I've got these sermons that my pastor gave me for us to work on our marriage. You know, if we just do what it says, you know, talk about our weeks before the week, manage our money together, get on the same page with raising our kids, I think we'll be fine. We don't really have to be together. We'll just just make this thing work. Yikes. Or how about posture three? Happy anniversary, honey. I I really don't want to be with you today or need to be with you. I just need some things from you. I need my clothes ironed. I need you to prepare a good meal. Uh, I'd like you for you to get me an anniversary gift. And maybe we'll have some physical intimacy tonight to be good. But other than that, I, I really just need some stuff from you. Yikes. Or lastly, happy anniversary, honey. I don't really want or need to be with you today. I just think there's some things we got to get done. We got some chores to do. We got to pay our bills. We probably should have some devotion with our kids, maybe serving the nursery at church. After that, I think that's plenty of time together. We'll probably be good for a while. Man, when you massage it down at that level, think about if that's the way I approach God. We're getting ready to start the Advent season where we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. From the garden through the desert to the city of God, it is God's presence that's the greatest gift. Do you believe that? Because listen, Jesus completely and utterly fulfilled the law. So for all of you who live life under God for fear of making him mad, fear not. He's happy with you because he's happy with Jesus. Jesus has satisfied the law of God fully and you are hidden in Christ. Jesus died on a cross and rose again. So for all of you that live life over God, fear not. Jesus has overcome all deficiencies and solved all the world's problems by conquering sin and death on the cross. He doesn't need your solutions, your efficiency, your management, your leadership will, he doesn't need it. You need his presence. Jesus is the treasure hidden in a field that a man sells everything for. So for all of you that live life from God, fear not. In the new heaven and new earth, you won't need medicine, you won't need money, you won't need master's degrees, you won't need retirement accounts. Everything you need, you'll have in the presence of God. He will be enough. And Jesus finished the mission of God. In fact, he said on the cross, it is finished. So for all of you who live life for God, fear not. Jesus has done what you and I are powerless to do, namely save the world from sin. In the new heaven and the new earth, all the nations will be reached. All sin and its horrible ramifications will have been destroyed and there will be no more mission to accomplish. Hallelujah. It will be finished. So, For all of us in this first advent What the angels say Fear not Today Seek to live life with God for that will be Your eternal situation Life with God amen So now We get to come to the table where this is A absolute reminder God wants To be with you God invites you To sit down at a Meal with God him. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Lord, help our unbelief. We hear this, we see it, it resonates with our being to get off the treadmill in the rat race of trying to please you, serve you, think about the world. Lord, draw us as a people to be with you. Lord, we know that you're a judge with a law that you intend to uphold, but help us to do that from the posture of being with you. We know that you're a good God who gives gifts to your children, but help us to do that from a posture of being with you. And we know that you're a God who is on mission, saving the world, overcoming injustice and unrighteousness, but help us to do all of that from a posture of being with you. Wherever we are in these next moments, draw us to this table so that we might be in communion with you and with each other. Christ, thank you for drawing us to the Father. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.